This is Vintage Broadcasting. The following is a study through the book of Philippians. My name is Frank Goss. I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come. I thank you very much. We're continuing in our study in the final two verses here in Philippians 1, verses 28 through 30. This is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul is talking quite honestly to these people and being quite upfront. He had just told the Philippians prior to this not to be alarmed by those outside of the fellowship. These people would be standing in opposition to the message of the gospel forever. They, they hate God. They might love and accept the people, but such as the old Roman jailer or Lydia who had the financial contacts and had an established business, they might like the people. It was the message that they were presenting that was offensive to them. And it was the religious elites who stood in opposition. The majority of the citizens went about their daily affairs. They heard many were saved. But the Jews, no. Oh, no. The upper Jews, no, no, no. They were the enemies of the cross and the haters of Christ. The religious elite. To stop the message, they would use any means possible. Legal intimidation, threatenings, public humiliation, shutting down the business, standing in their way, presenting obstacles of every kind, and ultimately persecution, imprisonment, and in many cases following this, death. Paul spoke from the scars of experience and from a deep, deep love and commitment to Christ. Don't be alarmed by these people, he was saying. Don't be afraid. Stand united. Stand as one. And people, we have to understand how important this actually is, that we stand united in Christ as one man. Don't break and run. Now, as I was looking at this, I got to thinking about the uh, Civil War soldiers from the South and from the North. In a major battle, they would find, after the battle was over, they would find rifles that were packed with four or five balls and overpacked with, with uh, gunpowder, and they wouldn't fire and they would find them laying in the field. And what was happening is the people got excited and they tried to overpack their guns in the heat of battle. And when they wouldn't fire, they would throw them down and they would run. They'd break and run. And that's why you would hear the cry, hold, hold, don't move, hold, stand your ground. Paul tells us in Ephesians, stand, stand firm. And having done all, stand. But you know what? We need the support of one another in our effort to stand Many, many times it's hard to stand alone as a single individual. And I do understand that we have Christ with us. I do fully understand that. And Christ will hold us. He is able to make us stand. He is able to give us strength to stand. But he's also given us the church. And within the church, we have a family.
We have the fellowship of saints. And this is a privilege and a blessing. The more I think about it, the more, more grateful and thankful I am for the church and for the church that God has put us in. We need to understand how precious this is. The bride of Christ, the saints gathered as the church is so critical. So we have, we have a united front to go with so we don't break and run. We support one another in battle. There's a logical sequence that we're seeing here in Philippians as we're reading it, and it's a logical sequence of growth. The Philippians had heard the gospel and they submitted themselves to Christ early on in the book of Acts. They began to study and to pray and to fellowship. Paul would teach them. They would learn. And these things burned within their heart. And they began to fellowship with one another. You had Lydia, the lady who had a lot of money and was very hospitable. And had an established business. You had the, the jailer. These are the ones that we know of. Then you had the girl that was delivered of a, demon, a demonic spirit. And you had other people who had joined the assembly. And they were of like minds. They were individuals who had individual lives. But they came together submitted to Christ, and as they came to understand Christ, they saw that this message, the message of the forgiveness that he brings, was critical, and they shared it with others, and the church began to grow. The word began to spread, and something new was going on in Philippi. One event logically produced another. Spiritually, the same rules apply. Sin, if conceived, produces division. Division proves a break, produces a break in fellowship, and it brings sadness and confusion, resistance and death. There's a logical conclusion. There's a logical sequence of events. But likewise, obedience produces blessing, joy, and life, satisfaction. Faithfulness in small things leads to faithfulness in many things. You do this, and this will happen. You do that, and that will happen. And it's been proven over and over and over. You push the gas pedal, and the car accelerates. Yell fire in a theater and you'll get a stampede. These things have been proven. Paul has been focusing on how we should conduct ourselves. We must imitate Christ. He speaks of this and almost instantly as he's speaking about this, he turns to address a, par a parenthetical issue. Wherever and whenever Christians live, there's going to be trouble. We're going to be living in the world and to be clear, when they lived, when people, when Christians live righteously and in a loving but intentional way, they seek to advance the gospel. That's just a normal thing. They seek to advance the gospel in the place where they are at. You've heard the saying, bloom where you're planted? Well, when you do this, it's going to produce persecution. When you think about persecution, you got one or two choices. You can be quiet and avoid it. Or you can march on and, and continue on with Christ and experience it. Now, this is true for all Christians globally and historically. It's almost a fixed Christian principle. In China, the attitude is in prison is the best seminary. And the understanding is, if you walk with Christ, you'll be going to seminary. You bear witness for Christ, as God intends you to do. There awaits persecution for you. It won't always come in the form of physical persecution. There'll be shunning and silence, systematic avoidance, rumors and lies and innuendos, pressure and mocking. These things will come. It's the natural result of your confession. Well, why have a confession then? I don't want to be persecuted. 
Okay. You don't understand Christ. When you think that way, you're not understanding Christ. Now, the world will tell you that your religion is okay. And it is, really, generally, with most people. It's okay if you want to believe the way you want to believe. But when it starts to come out in the open, people respond either negatively or positively. Those in the ranks of the negative can and will cause you problems. And those in the realm, in the spiritual realms, they see what's going on as well, and they are instigators. You'll experience public and private scorn. Ridicule comes from the general public. They cannot stand to see anyone act in a supposedly self-righteous matter. manner. Why? Well, because it gives a reflection on their behavior. Now, here's a true example that me, I personally experienced when I lived in Paris, France. I was coming home from a friend's house and was about to enter into my apartment building when I noticed a young man leaning up against my building. He was sitting on the sidewalk with his back to the wall. Thinking the man to be drunk, I approached him to see if I could do anything for the guy. The closer I got, the closer I came to him, I saw clearly that I wouldn't be able to help him that much. The man had tried to commit suicide by deeply slicing his arms. He was sitting in a pool of blood. His head hung limp on his chest. He could have been dead as far as I knew at that moment. I panicked. And I prayed for the man and myself, obviously. I had no idea where to go or what to do. I was living in a foreign land in a big, big, big city. And there was a restaurant right down the road, so I ran and I banged on the glass door. It was late in the evening and it was after hours for these guys, but there were a group of workers sitting around the table talking or doing whatever they do. They heard me and they saw me banging on the door. Reluctantly, one man came to the door and he told me, hey, we're closed. Do something me. That's what he told me in French. I told him about the young man and he shrugged. He looked over his shoulder and he called out to his friends. Ah, they kind of shrugged and got up from the table came outside and wanted to see what needed to be done. When they saw the young man, they began to chide me and tell me just to leave him alone and let him die. I was shocked. They asked why I wanted to get involved. This man was what was known in France as a pied noir, which means a North African. And the Frenchmen, they don't like the North Africans. They said, well, he wants to die, just let him die. Then they made snide remarks and they walked back to the restaurant, not helping me at all. Now, while I didn't know what to do, and I was actually afraid because this was a rough area of town, it was simply a matter of doing what was right. The indifference that I saw in these people was appalling, by no means acceptable under any circumstance. I found the phone and I called for help in broken, panicked French. It was a matter of standing up for what was right and decent. It was and it is a matter of morals and good. The restaurant folks were so calloused and cold, I've never met a group of people that, that way before or since. It rattled me. I got ridiculed for trying to help a man in desperate need. Sometimes your Christian conduct will require you to make a definitive choice in business. and These choices may lead to persecution. Many corporations require their account managers to spend lavishly on the accounts that they're courting taking them to posh locations and putting the bill for a spirited night of debauchery. It's just practical business. Everybody does it, but you don't. Because you can't. 
the nightclubs, the shows, and all that? No, you cannot do that. Not as a Christian. The Lord says no. This is not how a Christian conducts himself or herself. Oh, but we make an excuse for such a behavior, thinking since I did not partake of the alcohol or the partying, I was just doing what my bosses told me to do. I was to land the account, right? Well, you made the sale. You closed the deal, and now you're richer for it. Um, you tell me, uh, well, I'm supposed to submit to my employer, aren't I? Well, it depends, really. Who comes first with you? Who is your boss? As a Christian, we just say no to such behavior. It doesn't bring any honor to Christ. You actually are defaming his name. You're not required to preach and to hand out gospel pamphlets. I know that. You're not to do that with your potential customers. Your boss wouldn't appreciate that, nor would he allow it. I understand. But you just take a principled stand on what you are going to do. I cannot act like that. I cannot go to those places. I cannot participate in such activity. So you say no. Well, you take a stand like that and problems arise. Doesn't matter what your decision was based upon, it sticks into the throat of management. You're causing unneeded problems. You're not doing what you're asked to do. It's that simple. You either bow your knee to their way or not. It's not that big of a deal in their mind. You refuse, tension mounts. You're now seen as a problem. You can get reassigned, you know. But today, most people who stand in such a matter and say no, they'll be relieved of their position. They'll be fired. For what? For standing for Christ. There's a difference in darkness and light, and you know that. What's the greatest example of persecution ever suffered for righteousness? Naturally, as a Christian, we point to the cross, and for all that it stands. Jesus came into a world that was darkened by sin. People love their darkness because they've become so accustomed to it, they've learned how to function successfully in the darkest of venues. The sex trafficking, drug trafficking, stock manipulation, political tyranny, you name it, they do it, and they are delighted to be involved in it. Their deeds are and were evil. Christ came speaking words of truth about God's requirements. His wrath and his judgment, his wrath and Christ came speaking words of truth about God's judgment, his wrath that was to come, and his love that was abundant and free. He went into his own and they rejected him. Here he was, the light that enlightens every man, the creator of all things. Regardless of this, men looked the other way. They turned their heads from him. Jesus didn't come into the world to bring judgment upon these men. That is not why he came. This is not why he was here. He came to bring salvation to men, to keep them from the horrible wrath of God. He spoke about hell quite often. Yes, indeed, he did. He spoke about sin and the need to turn, but it was not in a matter of judgment and condemnation. It was a warning and a call to come to Christ, to come to life, to bring salvation to those that sat in darkness. He was seen as a fool and a troublemaker, a radically minded extremist. The problem was that he was casting light upon the sins of men. He was interrupting the plans of many. He was the light of the world, and men at that time, and in our day, love the darkness. They don't want light. Evil thrives in darkness. <laughs> Sunlight tends to cure things and expose things. 
Darkness seems to allow evil to fester and to grow. And men, by and large, have become very, very comfortable with the darkness. When Jesus appeared, his life cut like a knife into the human conscience. People could get along with hypocrisy between one another. It was a normal way of life. We came to see it. We come to accept it. As humans, we're all alike in our hypocrisy. If I point out your hypocrisy, then you will come back on me with a world of accusations against me. You'll let me know that I'm no better than you. I need to get off the pedestal on which I have perched. Who do I think I am? Who died and made me God? Well, the people couldn't do this with Jesus. He had no sin. Their accusations would not stick. He was correct in what he said, and they knew it. His words cut right through their lies and their deceit. He pierced the darkness. He spoke to the heart. And these people, these Jews, they had no defense. They could not deny the truth. Their their hypocrisy was exposed. They were embarrassed within themselves, convicted of their sin. They hated Christ for doing this. They hated him. People will accept pride, dishonesty. People will accept pride, dishonesty, sexual perversion, illegalism, theft, and lies and deception. Just keep us comfortable. Keep us protected. Keep us fed and keep us sheltered. And we'll be okay. How do I know these things? Look at the White House today. Look who's sitting in the most powerful seat in the world and consider what I'm saying. Christ will not accept these things. His truth exposes this relentlessly. He didn't do this as an effort to condemn the men and the women, but to show that sin destroys and God can forgive and restore me to a right relationship with God. Men, ever since Cain walked out of the garden, have rejected all that God has to offer. They stand in opposition to God and in conflict with the gospel. In the end, those who rejected God's standards eventually crucified Jesus. They thought at that time that they were free from all of this light from God. They crucified him. They killed him. So to the secular world of our day, and the secular world at that time, they were convinced they killed God. There is now no God. There are no absolutes. There's no soul. Well, they were wrong then, and they're wrong today. Those that walk with Christ walk in the light, which is the light of life. And this light cannot help but shine. You cannot contain the sun's light any more than you can live without breathing. How can a man have the risen Christ and dwelling in him and hide it from other men? Moses, after meeting with God on the mount, came down out of the presence of God, and his face glowed to the point that he was asked to cover his face. Such an experience will be yours should you walk with Christ. I'm not saying that you'll glow with such a heavenly light, but people will see Christ in you. You won't have to preach or teach or brag about your spiritual status or remind people, oh, I'm a Christian. People will know intrinsically that something about you is notably different. How many trees need to tell the people, hey, I'm a tree? People know by looking. Dietrich Bonhoeffer rightly said, When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. But when we die, it's Christ who lives through us. But Bonhoeffer, being one who rejected the word of God nonetheless, saw the truth regarding the cost of following Christ. 
Many point to Bonhoeffer as a prime example of a martyr for the faith. He is not a good example of the martyr as a martyr of the faith. He was a martyr for a cause, but not for the cause of Christ. He did not die because of his faith. He died for being found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder, the murder of Adolf Hitler. He was an evolutionist. He rejected Genesis' account of creation, and he taught his congregation that the Bible was filled with material that is historically unreliable. But this does not negate the truth of the phrase that he quoted above. When God calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Suffering will come to the Christian, and it is righteous suffering if it comes because of faith. If he robs a bank, that doesn't count. If he fails to pay his bills, he's not being unjustly persecuted by the bill collector. You're blessed when you suffer for righteousness' sake, not because of your sin. But why does God allow persecution? What's the purpose for that? Let's look at that in our next study. Try to understand what God's doing here. Thank you very much for following along in our study on Philippians, and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated, and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.